so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. In 2015, we were horrified when undercover videos of Planned Parenthood officials were shared. These videos were disturbing and raised many questions, including how should we understand the bioethics of fetal tissue research and what are the implications for the future of abortion in America? Stephen Harris, Paige Cunningham, Tim Gagline, and Frida Bush discussed these questions at our Evangelicals for Life conference. Let's join their discussion. Let me start off first by introducing myself. My name is Stephen Harris. I serve as Director of Advocacy for the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, working out of the D.C. office here. Uh, And I want to introduce uh, our distinguished panel uh, that are going to help us think through uh, the implications and really the matrix of issues uh, that uh, revolve around what's uh, been exposed uh, regarding Planned Parenthood. And so to my immediate left, I want to introduce Paige Cunningham. Uh, who is a lawyer by training, uh, serving as the executive director of the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity. Uh, She is also a fellow at the Institute for Biotechnology and the Human Future and a trustee of Taylor University. Uh, Cunningham is also an affiliate professor at Trinity Law School and Trinity Graduate School, and before that served as an adjunct instructor at Wheaton College for eight years. So glad to have you on the panel page. Next to Paige is Tim Gagline. Uh, He serves as vice president for external relations that focus on the family and is a senior fellow at the Heritage Foundation here in in Washington. Uh, Before that, he served as special assistant to President George W. Bush uh, as the president's principal outreach contact to conservatives. So, Tim, it's a delight to have you as well. And lastly, uh, next to Tim, uh, Dr. Frida Bush, uh, currently uh, serving as an obstetrician gynecologist in Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, Dr. Bush is also an instructor in the department of Family Medicine and OBGYN at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. And she is also the president and CEO of Medical Institute of Sexual Health, working out of Austin, Texas. So really delighted to have uh, uh, this panel here to help us think through uh, uh, what has been exposed uh, in regard to Planned Parenthood and really the broader uh, uh, pro-life movement and the future thereof. So I kind of want to jump in, uh, Paige, and really kick the first question off to you. I'm eager to have this conversation, but also sobered uh, by the fact that we have to have this conversation. Those of us, we believe that the womb is divine domain. It's God's territory. And the fact that we actually have to sit here and talk about uh, these horrific realities is very sobering. But I want, uh, Paige, if you could help us think through uh, some of the legalities involved. uh, When I talk to individuals who have viewed the Planned Parenthood videos, Uh, either one or several, or even some of the recent kind of summary videos that the Center for Medical Progress has put out, uh, they know that they're watching something horrific. Uh, And it's not because of the music that is attending the videos, as some would say. I think they are seeing uh, realities and having their conscience shocked 
Uh, and they want to understand deeply the implications of what's going on. And it's, it's a lot. I mean, they're seeing, obviously, the realities of abortion. They're seeing money being discussed. Uh, mm-hmm. They're seeing uh, phraseologies of selling and buying. And, and they know that something horrific is going on. Uh, how can we kind of get our head uh, around the kind of legal implications that are being exposed by these videos? What exactly are we looking at when we're seeing uh, these videos that have been put out? Well, that's the question that we want answered. We don't have a definitive legal answer. But first, I have to say, like you, I just didn't want to engage this. You know, I had been in the pro-life movement for many years. I was president of Americans United for Life before this current career. And I spent many years on the abortion issue. And here it is resurging in a particularly brutal and public way for which I'm grateful that we have it unveiled. Mm -hmm. And and you said it was awful to watch. The thing is, there are very few scenes that are actually visually disturbing. It's it's the attitudes and the words and what's actually happening that's so disturbing. They're adults just like us, you know. One of us could have gone down that path to be that person. And so that, you're right, that's what's really disturbing. So I look at this in three three ways. One, as a you know, an ardent pro-life evangelical. Um, Secondly, is an attorney. And third is a bioethicist. Mm -hmm. So those all kind of really come together very clearly in this whole situation with the Planned Parenthood videos. So let me just unpack one piece of it, and then we'll probably come back to more of these in the conversation. But the question that comes up a lot is, is what they were doing illegal? And that's the question that they're going to be, that there are ongoing committee hearings, or they're getting ready to have these hearings to answer that question. Here is my assessment of what laws may have been violated, hasn't been proven yet. Um, We have very strong protections for what's called human subject research. So when you're doing research involving human beings instead of mice, we have pretty careful guidelines to protect um, human welfare. And within that, there is a section for heightened protections for pregnant women, fetuses, and neonates. Um, And that's because they are at higher risk. And it's hard to study pregnancy. So we have to be able to study what happens during pregnancy. We have to be able to understand what happens to the developing unborn child. But there has to be a very good reason for the research to be done. If a fetus is involved, there can be no more than minimal risk. And if there is, then it has to be for the benefit of the fetus and that you can't get the knowledge any other way. So it's, you know, minimal risk is, you know, do you prefer Mozart or Taylor Swift when you're putting, you know, headphones on the baby in the womb? That's the minimal risk, I would assume. So we have these heightened protections. And then there's the same thing for newborns. But sometimes we have to do that kind of research. So we need these really careful guidelines. And as I'm reading through these, I'm thinking what we're dealing with here is the harvesting of fetal organs and fetal tissue. They want to say fetal tissue, but a lot of it's fetal organs because the most desirable part is the liver because that can be used for testing drugs and drug toxicity. Why aren't these fetuses protected by this federal regulation? It's not for their benefit, certainly. Um, The the issue of consent is different. To to do research involving um, a fetus... Mm -hmm. Both the mother and the father have to consent unless he simply cannot be found or is unavailable. Mm-hmm. So we have to have two, dual parent consent, which is more than we get with abortion. Right. But if you're experimenting on a child in the womb, you've got to get this consent. So we have really strong protections except when the fetus is not wanted. Yeah. So that's the, that's the first law. They haven't violated it because there is this other provision, which is if you are using human fetal tissue, then it has, it's permitted for, quote, 
to conduct or support research on the transplantation of human fetal tissue for therapeutic purposes. So it has to be um, to benefit someone who is sick. You may remember a number of years ago, there was transplantation of human fetal tissue for patients with Parkinson's and putting it into their brains. Those experiments went horribly wrong. The patients got worse, and it's irreversible because the fetal tissue had just so intertwined with the adult brain tissue. So that was a tragic, tragic failure. Again, I ask the question, for whom is this therapeutic? Is it, this research is not therapeutic for this fetus and perhaps not for any fetuses or unborn children. So, yes, it's permitted, and it's permitted to be harvested, but if a woman who's going through an abortion is going to consent to this, there's some other additional considerations. One is there's no inducement, so you can't offer her some special benefit, some special favor if she will agree to consent to the, the use of the um, aborted fetus. Huh. And you can't alter the timing, the method, right. or the procedure for the purposes of getting a better, better subject. And if, if, if you've seen these videos, it seems to be clear that in some cases they suggest that they manipulated the fetus in order to get a better um, retrieval. And in one, one of the videos, the doctor says, we basically maxed out the patient's tolerance for pain. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Not to benefit her, not to help her have a better abortion, but to have a better um, sample and a more intact sample. Mm -hmm. And then finally, there's the partial birth abortion ban, which our Supreme Court has upheld. And that is, you know, where the fetus is delivered intact, and then usually the cranial contents are evacuated. And it can be breech, feet first, or it can be um, head first. Mm -hmm. And we have in some of the videos um, an admission that sometimes the fetuses would slip, slip out too quickly, and it would be completely delivered before the abortion was complete. So my question is, was, does this violate the partial birth abortion ban? And secondly, when did the fetus die, and how did the fetus die? So I think there's some serious legal questions to be answered, and based on what I have seen and read of the transcripts, I'm, I'm fairly certain that they have skirted very close to, if not over, some of those guidelines. But again, that's not been decided. As a lawyer to say, this is alleged, and that's yet to be proven. But Right. There's, there's a problem going on. Yeah. And, oh, and one more. I forgot the most important part. That's what everybody's, the buying and selling. No valuable consideration. Right. Which means you can't offer her something. You can't give her a discount on her abortion. There should be no inducement. Um, there's some concern that women may um, rationalize or justify their abortion for this. That has not been proven that that's the reason why a woman would go ahead with an abortion, but it should just be put out there. Yeah. So, yeah, the, the, the haggling over prices for body parts, that does seem to be fairly clear from the videos. Yeah, yeah. So big and concerns. Sure, and just to footnote, the investigative panel that Paige was referring to, the House uh, Energy and Commerce uh, Subcommittee on Health uh, put together an investigative panel on infant lives, uh, and hopefully this year we'll see some of the uh, fruit of that work, uh, which will probably be some hearings and other things to really uh, get to the bottom of what is actually going on uh, in those videos. But certainly, uh, as Paige walked through, I mean, some of the things seem to be pretty explicit. Uh, and and to, to try to explain out of that is going to take a, a, a huge effort and task. And some of it is going to prove uh, insufficient, certainly. Oh. Tim, I want to I jump to you and, and, and really uh, following up on the effect of uh, these videos and what they have exposed. I, I think many who watched them, even those who would disagree with us on this issue, uh, began to think, you know, this may serve a big blow 
to uh, the abortion industry. Uh, as you kind of survey the effects of the video and survey the land, uh, both legislatively and culturally, uh, what are you sensing to be the future of the pro-life movement and, and, and really uh, the reality of on-demand uh, abortion? Uh, many people like to ask uh, about the overturning of Roe. That's a, a massive question and a lot feeding into the possibility of that. Yes. Uh, but just you kind of surveying, you know, what are your thoughts on, on where, we, where we might be going from here? Well, I think one of the things, Stephen, that is so important for everybody in this room uh, is to understand that anecdotes are not data. Uh, and, uh, you know, we're all tempted in the pro-life movement uh, to, to want those anecdotes, those snapshots, the, mm-hmm. the, 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 the moments in these videos that are so troubling. You know, we want the world to see them, and we want the world to feel as strongly and as passionately as we do. But I think that dispassionately, and I'm, I'm sharing just a couple of anecdotes, uh, our focus on the family office is located very close to the U.S. Senate. And shortly after the first uh, video uh, came out, um, I was visiting with some friends of mine who are uh, in the Democratic Party. Uh, they are, uh, they are pro-choice. And I think it's fair to say that on most issues, they would not share the worldview of you know, people sitting uh, on this stage. Uh, and we were not meeting about the Planned Parenthood videos. We were meeting about something uh, you know, quite unrelated. And at the very end of this meeting, I asked this group of people who uh, I felt certain were, uh, you know, pro-choice, just their, you know, anecdotally, their view of um, of these videos. And may I say, it was the most uncomfortable pause that I've ever experienced. Is if I'd walked into their office and said George Carlin's seven dirty words, you know, uh, I mean, they just didn't want to respond at all. Uh, and, uh, and I thought that was curious. And I said to them, um, uh, you know, we're, we are people who can be civil and we can be diplomatic. We can all be unapologetic about our views in this room. We all still believe in the Bill of Rights. Sure. Uh, what do you all think? I, I, I said, I would really love to know your view. Uh, and again, this very unusual silence. And uh, it's, not, it's not like other things. Mm-hmm. We live in a world where we are bombarded by images. We have this sort of cataclysmic, you know, endless sense in, in, in the social media where sometimes we all feel like we are, you know, proverbially, right, uh, you know, visually drinking from the fire hose. This is different. This has uh, now and forever deeply dented uh, the, uh, the, the marketing uh, capacity, the branding of Planned Parenthood. Uh, I, I'm sure there are some people in this room who remember the great film Amazing Grace. Uh, this was a film about William Wilberforce. It was a film about this uh, rather remarkably morally courageous member of the British Parliament who led the abolition uh, movement uh, in, in Great Britain. And in much of this movie, he can't seem to get the attention of otherwise well-meaning people. So um, he organizes a boating party on the Thames. And this uh, boating party makes its way down the Thames. Mm -hmm. And William Wilberforce purposely makes sure that the boating party, which is otherwise pleasant and presumably filled with good food and drink, uh, edges its way over uh, toward the slave ships. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And there is this remarkable moment in Amazing Grace where it offends every sense of every member on that boating party on the Thames. And forever. And I have to say, 
that for people of goodwill on the pro-life side and on the pro-choice side, people who have never allowed themselves the ability to actually internalize this and to, to really uh, give it uh, the moral consideration that it deserves, uh, I think have forever been deeply, incontrovertibly moved forever on this question. And I think it is uh, a fair assessment to say that this will have measurable implications uh, now and down the road for how we think about and adjudicate and legislate on the pro-life issue. It, it's, um, I, I, I am, uh, as a result of horrific videos, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, there is born hope. Yeah, 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 that's certainly true. I, 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 I yeah, certainly have sensed the fact that uh, the videos have incited uh, a lot of individuals to lean in, uh, perhaps for the first time, uh, and those who have been involved in the pro-life movement for decades uh, certainly have kind of reinvigorated uh, the calls all over again. I want to jump to uh, you, Dr. Bush, uh, speaking of uh, longevity uh, on uh, this uh, issue and in this space. Uh, you have served in the medical profession for over 40 years, uh, have been involved in the delivery of uh, perhaps thousands of babies uh, serving right now as a practicing obstetrician gynecologist. Uh, can you just share a little bit about uh, your um, uh, conviction as a pro-life uh, medical uh, practitioner and particularly how you view uh, organizations like Planned Parenthood as a practicing uh, OBGYN. Uh, how are you assessing uh, the realities of what we're discussing right now and how has this worked out and played out in your life? Well, first of all, I thank you for the opportunity to be here. And uh, before I begin my remarks, I would like to acknowledge um, the passing of a, I would call a staunch pro-life uh, crusader. Today, since I've been here, I learned that uh, Mr. Roy McMillan passed of a long illness. And I don't know, I heard someone remark, many of you may know him, very active for years, militantly so, saving lives. And um, Roy and his wife, Beverly McMillan, who is a, was a former partner of mine, but also was a former abortionist, they have talked about making a, a significant imprint have taken women into their home for months under their own resources and referring them for care and counseling, um, showing that pro-lifers do have a heart and a sense for both the mother and the child. So I just wanted to acknowledge him and for the years that he worked in that area. So um, the question, the comment that you would say is that as an active physician, we were always taught in our training in OBGYN that um, we had the privilege of caring for two patients and we had to be responsible for both. As a matter of fact, I have a quote here from the 1989 eighth edition of Williams Obstetrics that says we are concerned with two lives and the well-being of two people who are interwoven. Now, this was being taught in obstetrics and gynecology as the training of physicians. And then, um, even as late as 1989, this is what we were taught. So it seems as though the response of our current um, education, training physicians for abortions, the Planned Parenthood uh, videos actually showed 
very clearly that this is a person, this is a human being, a baby that is being uh, mutilated, if you would, for gain financially. And so it is so counter to what we have been taught that it really, I don't think anyone will be able to look at abortion in the same light, whether you're pro-life or not, you cannot dismiss the fact that it is a person. Also in medical school, we were taught uh, medical ethics that started out with um, the principles of beneficence, which is do no harm. And then there was non-maleficence, which is um, do good. And there are other principles that we are taught that, again, this goes against, um, I believe, another one is uh, self... Well, there's autonomy. Autonomy. And then justice. And justice. Treating people with respect Mm -hmm. and giving them the opportunity to make decisions. All of those were violated in those videos and how Planned Parenthood took care of it. So it makes you wonder how the physicians who are practicing in the abortion industry can totally dismiss what they were taught in medical school, which is the very foundation of our training, how they can dismiss it in the specialization training of obstetrics and gynecology and still consider themselves practicing physicians or doing a service. It goes counter to all of that. Mm -hmm. Totally dismissing the fact that this second person in the subject is also a human being and should have the right to those same basic bioethics principles. Just because you are small, but you're still a person, does that mean we dismiss the value of that life? I don't think so. And I'm expecting that anyone who watched those videos, anyone who is in legislation, anyone who is in advocacy cannot be the same after seeing the callous nature Mm -hmm. that another human being was treated and totally dismissed of the medical ethics that is considered wholesome and healthy and right. I'm thinking of also the introduction to the um, Bill of Rights that says, that we have the inalienable right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Mm -hmm. May may I pick up on that? That is so beautifully said. Um, um, And this was brought out by Paige. There is a casual malevolence Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that is the narrative of these videos. It's what they have in common. This kind of brutality that seems so benign. And I have to tell you, I am so um, hopeful, despite, you know, the, 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 the terrible nature of, of what's discussed. Yeah. But especially, I'm hopeful, Stephen, on the rising generation of young Americans. Sure. Uh, tomorrow will be my 30th march. And uh, we have marched in gale force winds, <laughs> ice storms, uh, you know, threatening hurricanes. Uh, you know, snow, blizzards, etc. But you know what is remarkable through all of that? This march gets younger and bigger every year. Uh, and I think we should... Uh, this morning, there were two students visiting Washington. 
uh, who are friends of friends, and they stop by our focus office. Uh, they are, go to Ole Miss, mm-hmm. and uh, they were sharing with me, you know. Uh, and again, this is just one anecdote, but the, the millennial generation, the generation actually behind them, mm-hmm. um, look, they grew up, you know, uh, in an aural world. Mm-hmm. Uh, they see things. Uh, they, they're, they're surrounded by screens. And it has an impact. And I just have to believe, you know, that, that, the, that the purpose of government, the purpose of the law is justice. That's the point. And, um, and either we're going to be a just society or we are not. Mm-hmm. And we're determining that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I think that the Planned Parenthood videos, um, quite apart from partisanship, sure. the Planned Parenthood videos push us closer to a medical and to a legal and to a cultural quotient that I think is definitively, demonstrably pro-life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, this is interesting. I mean, we're talking about uh, kind of basics and fundamentals in both medical ethics and how we understand our, our coming together of, of uh, us as American citizens, constitutional principles uh, that ought to be reflected in how we treat one another, certainly uh, ways in on this issue. I think a question that's often asked is, I mean, in the face of such uh, fundamental, simple principles that are clearly being violated, you know, how are we seeing the persistence of this industry? And Paige, I want to kind of come back to you uh, and really ask about uh, the challenges and the, and the obstacles. You know, many in this room might not uh, be fully aware of just the matrix, the, the complex matrix of support uh, that uh, organizations like Planned Parenthood and really pro-abortion advocates have that is really fueling uh, the endurance and their longevity. What kind of um, yeah, 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 what are we up against in terms of trying to push back against, just to give a sense of uh, what, what we're looking at? I think a lot of it has been well articulated today that yeah. Planned Parenthood has enjoyed the support of the elite, yeah. the cultural elite, the media elite, the intellectual elite. And I hope, as, as Tim has been mentioning, I hope that that is eroding. But they've controlled the message to say that anyone who's pro-life is part of this war on women. Mm -hmm. They say that to restrict abortion is to return to back alley abortions Mm -hmm. while they deny that back alley abortions Mm -hmm. are happening right now. And so we're seeing, I think, maybe some parallels in even the current mood of the electorate and this more this populist surge is that the elite are not going to decide for us anymore. And maybe there's some hope in that. So this is just kind of a maybe a very casual analysis. Mm-hmm. I see some other parallels, and I kind of wanted to, to point this out sure. in terms of the, the whole issue of consent. Um, who can consent to the donation of this tissue? And I want to draw just a little brief parallel with the, the issue of donating your body sure. for research. Yeah. So the first public dissection of a cadaver was done around the 14th, 15th centuries. Then it began to be seen that this could be a part of medical education as we're actually moving towards um, scientific medicine mm-hmm. and the, then they need cadavers to practice on. So the first group they went after were the criminals to get their bodies after an execution or after their death. That wasn't enough. So who did they go after next? Grave robbers. So they had illegal activity to provide the corpses. That wasn't enough. So who did they go after next? Then they went after the poor people. And it took almost 500 years before we got the Uniform Anatomical um, Gift Donation Act so that you can donate your body legally and with assurance of what's going to happen to your, your organs if you donate the whole body for research or organs for life-saving transplants. But guess what else happened? 
somebody discovered that there was money to be made in organ transplantation. And so where you see value in something, there's going to be a market to procure it. We see the same thing happening with the tissue here. So living donors can provide kidneys. And so people who have two kidneys can now be seen as an object, objectified. And what can be objectified, not seen as a full human being, can be commodified, put a price on it. And what can be commodified can be exploited. Mm -hmm. We've seen it in the exploitation of women for sex trafficking. We've seen exploitation of poor workers for their kidneys. And we see the same pattern happening. But that cannot be suppressed forever. The International Consortium of Investigative Journalists did an 11-country, eight-month study into the trade in body parts and organs. And there was another study that was done in, um, in the United States that found similar things, is that a lot of money is to be made off of a healthy body, between eighty dollars and $200,000 for all the products that can be derived. It's not just donating life-saving organs anymore. The U.S. study found that over 70% of people whose loved ones' bodies were donated did not know what was going to happen to that body. And so the question is, would you care? Would you care if your tissue ended up in a treatment to make a model's lips plumper or to enhance a male sex organ? Would you care that your body was not being used for a medical student to learn to dissect but was being used as a crash test dummy? When you expose what's being done from the trail of objectification to commodification to exploitation... That cannot be suppressed, and it's going to erupt. And I think we've seen that same kind of eruption here. So to go back to your question, I think the hope is that the truth, and not in a theological sense, in a cultural sense, the truth will set you free, free from the deception Mm -hmm. that what is going on behind those doors is good for women. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So there's hope. No, absolutely. Tim, I I want to come back to uh, the legislative front for a second. Perhaps some in this room have followed closely uh, the efforts uh, taken uh, in the Congress to advance pro-life legislation. Uh, we've seen several things come up, make their way through the House, uh, fall off in the Senate. Uh, the 60-vote rule is kind of hard to, right. to, the hurdle hard to get over. Uh, I, I want to uh, kind of touch on uh, what may be um, some disillusionment with regard to individuals um, weighing in legislatively in terms of uh, voting life, in terms mm-hmm. of voicing their opinion on pro-life legislation. Yeah. Uh, how can we best think through that um, in light of most recent efforts, even past efforts, uh, the legislative front, uh, to encourage us to continue to, mm-hmm. to push in advance? You know, the most encouraging thing really is a data point, yeah. which is that in all of the rest of the developed world, with the exception of the United States, the abortion issue is not in the legislature. Yeah. It's not discussed. It's, it is mostly considered, you know, the, the, the sort of the equivalent of, uh, of the persona non grata. It's just considered to be over. The debate is considered to be yesterday's news. Uh, and, uh, you know, in, in those countries where there's at least two parties or multiple parties, uh, it, it just isn't discussed. Mm-hmm. It's quite the opposite here. Why? Because we are fundamentally a religious republic. We are still a religious republic. People who are Democrats, people who are Republicans, people who are liberals, people who are conservatives, uh, they understand. And in my view, there are measurably great things happening on Capitol Hill as a direct or indirect result of these videos. Um, I mean, the fact that we were even having a national debate uh, on the defunding of, of Abortion, Inc. This is, this is a very major development. 
the fact that we are going to have in the Supreme Court this term two major cases where abortion is either primarily or one of the underlying themes of these two big cases, very important. And those decisions will be made uh, in June, you know, right ahead of the 2016 uh, elections. So I feel very strongly in the appropriations process, in the authorization process of the House and Senate, this issue is decidedly front and center. Uh, And it's not going away. It will be a major implication for a very important reason. Um, On Inauguration Day 2017, Mm -hmm. we will have three Supreme Court justices who will be 80 years of age or over. Mm -hmm. And we will have a fourth who will be in his late 70s. Mm -hmm. That means whoever is elected next time may very well end up nominating to the highest court in the land, and that's called a legacy, Uh, one, two, three, or four uh, uh, justices, even for one term. I mean, we don't know, right? So when you combine the legislative track and the judicial track with what's already bubbling, right, uh, in the national election, I think that this is a a high point for the pro-life movement. And I think that that the Planned Parenthood videos catalyze and push forward, uh, you know, outside of all those lanes, uh, this issue right to the top. It's going to be a major issue. Yeah, that's great. And I just uh, just to uh, ask a follow-up question about that to kind of help us understand for those who maybe have heard a little bit but didn't understand the particulars uh, on the defund effort, uh, kind of where that went. Uh, if you can just kind of walk through chrono- chronologically kind of what took place. Yes. Most recently we had the veto. Just kind of... Uh, yeah, uh, I, I'm, I'm glad you asked. You know, there is disillusion in the country. You know, I, I travel a lot in my professional life uh, you know, somebody asked once, what is Washington? You know, it's 68 miles, square miles surrounded by reality, you know. Uh, when, you, when you go out into the country beyond the Beltway and you talk to real people, uh, what you find is that most people, and why wouldn't they, they think uh, you can get things passed by 51 votes, mm-hmm. right? That mm-hmm. constitutes a majority, yeah. right? Uh, the founding fathers wanted something else. They wanted it very difficult uh, to, to, to pass legislation. You know, they wanted it to be incremental and slower. So to get anything done, which is to say to get a veto-proof bill to the president, you have to have at least 60 votes. So uh, the short answer to your question is there are a majority votes in the House and in the Senate Mm -hmm. to defund Planned Parenthood. Right, right. Right. But it does not meet the veto-proof majority. I don't know in 2016 where we're going with that. But, it, but you know, I have to say that that's why I think that the implications in medicine, mm-hmm. in the law, in culture, in many ways those things come before what is going to actually happen in the public policy process. And, again, good news is ahead. Absolutely. Uh, Dr. Bush, I want to come back around to you. Paige mentioned uh, how the truth coming to light and even uh, Tim's last statement and how that helps kind of shape the public policy conversation as more things uh, arise in terms of giving people good information. Uh, and, and the medical profession, you know, you have encountered 
women in uh, quote-unquote crisis pregnancies. You've encountered women who uh, pursue abortion route. You've encountered women who uh, have been talked away from that uh, route. Uh, talk to me a little bit about um, the effect of abortion on women, just that process that you've been up close and personal to observe. Um, there is uh, the last uh, panel talked about it, the, the, the war on women uh, rhetoric that's being uh, uh, promoted by those in the opposition uh, to uh, pro-life uh, uh, advances. Um, what do you think about that? Uh, having seen what abortion uh, does, the reality, the experience, having dealt with women before and after, um, what, what, is it, what, what is that experience like uh, from, from your vantage point? Well, women have definitely been, I would say, victimized. We all know what happens to the baby, and these videos have certainly shown that. But what happens to the mother, not just during the procedure, but after the procedure, are things that you have to consider. Mm-hmm. Just mentioning what happens during the procedure, um, whether it's a medical abortion, which is supposed to be safer, or whether it's a, a surgical abortion, the woman can never be the same, having had that child taken from her. But let's talk a little about medical abortions. That's where you take the medication that is supposed to cause her to go into labor. If she gets the medication, she will take a pill that separates the baby from the lining of the uterus. Then she takes a second pill a number of hours later that causes her to have contractions. What they don't understand is that sometimes those contractions and the bleeding will go on for many hours and for days. And you hear the horror stories from the ladies about how painful it was and how frightening it was to be home alone with that procedure going on. We don't hear that sometimes it doesn't complete. And so the woman still has to go back and get a surgical abortion. And what's sad about that is that many times the person who started the chemical abortion, the medical abortion, is not really the same one that she will see again. And their complications, the continuity of care may not be there. Mm -hmm. I think, um, so medical abortions are really uh, no, are not as safe as they're put up to be. And I know that there are women who have actually died from infections or from complications following it. There's a log that is kept of those Um, but that information doesn't get out to the public. They think, I'll take a pill, and that's the end of that. Can you think of the psychological effect of you having to go through that for hours, Mm -hmm. knowing what is happening to you, not just physically, but psychologically? Another thing that we don't talk about is the complications that occur as a result of the surgical abortion. As someone said, having an abortion is not just a walk in the park. You want to know that when the surgical abortion occurs, that the person who is actually doing the abortion is medically licensed, has been trained, and is competent to do what they are doing, and also would be available to handle any consequences or complications. Anytime you have a surgical procedure, you give consent for that procedure. And in the consent form, You list the benefits and you list the potential risk. So you you are there to get the benefits, but you still need to understand that there may be risk of infection, there may be risk of bleeding, 
There may be risk of injury to the woman, to the uterus, to the bowel or the uh, intestines that are, are uh, the tube leading from the kidney to the bladder that are around the uterus. Should perforation going through the lining of the uterus occur? You need to understand that there is even the possibility of excessive bleeding or hemorrhage and death. That means your death. And so I'm not confident that when the consent is given at the abortion clinics that they are given all of that. They know the benefits. I'll get out of the fix that I'm in. But do they really understand what they're consenting to? You also want to know that the person who does the procedure is competent, trained, know what they're doing, and should complications occur, that they have made arrangements for emergency care at a local hospital within a certain mile of of the facility. You would like to know that you will be fine. What you may not recognize is that many of the providers are not OBGYN physicians. Some are uh, family doctors. Some may have other professions. Some are mid-level practitioners. A few states have now made it legal for nurse practitioners or um, nurse midwives or PAs to actually provide the procedure. My question is, have they made arrangements for someone who is capable of handling the complications to take care of them? Do they have legal arrangements with the hospitals to receive them? Often what happens is the patient is then left to get to the emergency room by themselves. And many of them are too ashamed to say that they were having an abortion. So the emergency physician is essentially taking care of the person blindly. Often um, the person who does the procedure is an itinerant. He flies in and he leaves again with no backup for that person. And so um, I think it's important for Full disclosure, while we're investigating Planned Parenthood and the abortion clinics, let's look at what are we doing to protect the woman. As I said, initially, she is being victimized as a result of this sloppiness in procedures. Mm -hmm. We also get the idea that um, the complications are minor. It's something that you can just, for example, if she gets an infection, It's something that she can just get rid of with an antibiotic or two and it's over. Talk about antidotes. I'm well aware of a a young woman who was in college in Mississippi who her parents took her to the abortion clinic because they wanted her to complete her education. She became infected, ended up becoming septic, went to the ICU, had brain injury that she was discharge eventually to a nursing home. That young lady died. It did not show up as an abortion death on the death certificate. So we really don't know how many abortions are being done. We don't know how many people are dying from abortion because the um, numbers are not being kept. Matter of fact, the CDC even says only 45 of the 50 states of the United States actually keep abortion records and report them to them. So we really don't know how many abortions are being done in the United States. And we know even less about the complications because of the reasons that I just gave you. Women need to be 
protected when it comes to their um, health as for, uh, rather than being victimized. A lot, of, a lot of what we talked about so far in terms of uh, protections that have or legislative efforts that have been done have been at the federal level. Paige, I want to come back to you as we're finishing up here and, and talk about some things that are going on uh, in the states. Currently, 38 states have fetal homicide laws, and of those, 23, state, 23 states protect infants from the earliest stages of pregnancy. If you look towards the future, do you anticipate uh, more of these kind of fetal protection laws being uh, advanced at the state level? Uh, kind of what is the outlook at, on, that, on that vantage point? I mean, I really hope so. I think what Tim, Tim mentioned and what Charmaine Yost mentioned this morning about these things that seem to be small, mm -hmm. but many of these small victories do add up to just a cumulative um, mount, mounting pressure of change and cultural change. And I can just say as a bioethicist, I hope that this is successful because how we regard and protect the fetus has some serious implications for how we regard and protect embryos that exist outside the womb. Mm -hmm. They're being used for research for embryonic stem cell research. And the UK is now um, approved doing gene editing of human embryos mm -hmm. for the sake of eliminating a serious disease, but a lot of embryos are going to die in the process. We have battles, uh, custody battles over frozen embryos yeah. because somebody's identifying them as valuable. Right. So I hope that the fetal protection laws will cause us to rethink how callously we regard the human embryo as research material rather than as a very tiny mm -hmm. human being who deserves the chance to fully develop and grow. Certainly. I'm encouraged by the fact that there are uh, hopeful fronts uh, and certainly encourage you all to continue to weigh in. Uh, uh, things are no longer going to be the same because of what uh, I would say that God in his grace has allowed uh, to be exposed uh, with regard to Planned Parenthood and the abortion industry. Can you join me in thanking our panelists for... Thank you for tuning in to the ERLC podcast. Subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Podcast, or Spotify to stay up to date on episodes. And be sure to tune in next week when we hear from Andrew Peterson.